Uh, Take your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter 10 with me. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 18 through 32. This is our scripture reading for the day. And uh, I would encourage you, even if um, you don't have a regular scripture reading program that you use, or even if you do, one good thing um, to do is to read from the Proverbs every day and um, guaranteed to get some practical wisdom for the day. Even if you read the same proverb seven times in a week, each time you read it, you'll probably find something different that the Lord is impressing upon you for yourself from that proverb. So today is Proverbs chapter 10, verses 18 through 32. Verse 18. Whoever hides hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. To do evil is like sport to the fool, but a man of understanding has wisdom. Fear of the wicked will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a lazy man to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 18 through 32. Uh, Did you notice how in this section that we read today, it begins by talking about your speech, talks about your lips, what you say, your tongue, and it ends with your speech, talking about the speech of the righteous, the mouth of the righteous, the tongue of of the wicked, the lips of the righteous, the mouth of the wicked. Does that remind you of any other portion in Scripture that talks a lot about the power of the tongue? James talks a lot about it. I think it's important about what we say, how we communicate to people. Absolutely, it's important. There's righteous communication and there's unrighteous communication. And here we see that emphasized here in this Proverb, one of the hardest things there is to do is watch your mouth to keep control over what uh, you say. So maybe a good prayer for all of us is, Lord, control my lips. Now let me ask you another question here before we move off this passage. Where does the words of your mouth originate from? Your heart comes out of your heart. You would never say it if you didn't already have it in your heart. You might not put together a conscious thought to say, well, I'm going, when this person says this, I'm going to say this. But when you have an outburst and you speak, it comes right from your heart. It reveals what your heart is. So our mouth reveals what's uh, in our heart, in our innermost being. So good Good practical lesson from the Proverbs in this passage. 
Now take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. So we're coming to the end of this paragraph here that we have been studying about Paul's exhortation to Timothy to pray. Uh, Paul has told Timothy, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So uh, Paul is exhorting Timothy to pray, and I believe by extension he's exhorting the Ephesians. Remember, uh, Timothy is in Ephesus at this time. He is exhorting the Ephesians to pray as well. And uh, these prayers are to be made for all men, but they are to specifically or especially be prayed for kings and those in authority because these are particular people who have a direct impact on whether or not we live a tranquil life. Do you have a life of peace and quiet or are you always worried about those in authority doing something to you that might uh, upset how you live. And the only way that that changes is through prayer. And specifically, the prayer here is for their salvation. We pray for the salvation of those who are in leadership over us. And I think this is not, this is not talking about just any leadership. This is talking about political leadership. Kings, that's a political office, so to speak, and those who are in authority. Let's talk about uh, political office, those who are in government, who are over us, who have authority uh, that has been given to them, that they exercise. And so um, those in authority might include everything from the president to the governor to the mayor to the police officer who has been delegated a certain amount of authority. And uh, Paul says that these men are to be prayed for because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And when he says this, immediately afterwards, he explains what this knowledge of the truth is. And he mentions three truths that go along with salvation. These three truths are necessary information for salvation. Number one, there is one God. There is one God. We see this in verse 5. This means that there is only one to whom every man is accountable. There is only one who has ultimate authority over your life. This also means there is only one who can save. There is one God. The second truth that Paul states here, also in verse 5, is that there is one, what? Mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There is only one who can bring man to God. Only one. And that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can reconcile men to God. There's no other way that men can have a right relationship with God. It's only through Jesus Christ. Today we're going to focus on the third truth that Paul mentions found in verse 6, and then we're going to see how it relates to Paul's ministry in verse 7. So the third truth, verse 6 here, The third truth can be summarized in this way. There is one sacrifice for all. There is one sacrifice for all. So we have the three truths. One God, one mediator, one sacrifice for all. In church world, in Bible world, so to speak, we often call this sacrifice the, and it starts with an A, Do you know what I'm thinking? Can you read my mind? Atonement. I think I read your lips just right. (laughs) 
The we call it the uh, atonement. And let's consider this word for a second, atonement. Uh, if you look this word up in the dictionary, atonement means reparations, compensation, recompense, payment, or restitution. And so if we put that into a verb form, it means to make atonement, to make reparations, to make a payment, to make restitution. Now, when we go to the language of the Bible, the language in which the Bible, or the languages in which the Bible was originally written, we of course have to start with the Hebrew Old Testament. And the word translated as atonement in our Old Testament is the word kafar, kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R. So that's your Hebrew lesson for the day. Kafar, which means, that word means to cover, to cover. So you can remember that, kafar, cover, kafar, if I say it real fast. Kafar means to cover. For instance, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, Noah is told to kafar the inside and outside of the ark with pitch. He's to cover the inside and outside of the ark with pitch. But this term, this term takes on a more technical sense when it's applied to the sacrificial system of the Jews. And even when it's applied to that system, and that's where we really get the word atonement from, it still never loses its meaning to cover. But the thing that controls this word now is what is covered. In the sacrificial system, what is covered is sins. Sins are what is covered. Interestingly enough, when we look at the Old Testament, this word, atonement, is almost always used as a verb. It, it's almost always used as an action to make atonement, to cover. So when someone gives a sacrifice, they are giving an offering to cover, to atone for their sins. As we move to the New Testament, this word, Atonement is never used. Lots of other words are used. Propitiation, satisfaction, ransom, redemption. But atonement is never used. As we have seen in the Old Testament, atonement's connected to sins. But when this idea is applied to the New Testament, what we see is a a distinction that is made between the Old Testament concept of atonement and the New Testament death of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, it, it specifically sets out that the death of Christ has done what the Old Testament sacrifices could never do. And I've already alluded to this passage, but in Hebrews 10, 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see, under the Old Testament dispensation of things, the sacrifices were never intended to take away or remove sins. The sacrificial system that was practiced was something of a placeholder. It was something to get the Jews through until the one sacrifice could be made to take away sins. You see, the Old Testament sacrifices covered sins. They didn't take them away, just covered them. And it kept them covered until the one sacrifice would be made that would take away the sins. And so, the Old Testament acts of atonement all pointed forward to the death of Jesus Christ, the death of the Messiah, the one mediator who came to die as a sacrifice so that sins 
could be removed so that sins could be forgiven and taken away. Understanding this one sacrifice is important because of the significant portion of God's revelation and, and speaking to the Jews where he says, in a way I'm paraphrasing sort of, look forward to this. There's a huge chunk of the Bible that is saying to the Jews, look forward to the sacrifice. There's also a huge chunk of the Bible that says to us today, look back, look back at the sacrifice to see what Christ has done for you. This is important that we understand about the death of Christ because believe it or not, today uh, it is challenged whether Jesus died for sins or not. I should say it's challenged again, that it's been challenged over history. But it's being challenged again whether Christ actually died to pay the price for your sins so that you would have forgiveness of sins. Uh, what the practical implications of this is, is that if Jesus did not die to pay the penalty for your sins as your substitute, there's no salvation. There's no salvation. But here we see in our passage that salvation is wrapped up in this one sacrifice. So let's look at verse 6 here. Verse 6, it says, Who gave himself a ransom for all, to be, for all to be testified in due time. So the first thing I want you to notice here is this is a mediatorial act. This is a mediatorial act. The action being spoken of here is done by the mediator. Uh, the word who refers directly back to the end of verse 5, the man, Christ Jesus. So that's the who here. We understand that. But we also need to understand when it comes to salvation, man is not the one who is acting. Man is not the one who is providing salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who is acting. He is the one who is providing salvation. So this all-sufficient payment that we're looking at here, did I give you that? That's Roman numeral one. Was that a blank there? Did I put a blank? Oh, so all-sufficient payment is Roman numeral one. Letter A, a mediatorial act. So this all-sufficient payment is the act of the mediator. Uh, secondly, letter B there in your notes, I want you to see this is a sacrificial act. A sacrificial act. It says, who gave himself. Who gave himself. So here's the question. We've already answered uh, one of these questions. Question one, who gave? And question two, what did he give? Who gave and what did he give? Of course, we've answered the question, who gave, with the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is the giver. Whatever's going to be given in this passage comes from Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives it. The idea of gave or the idea to give is to transfer something to someone else. It's a, it's a transfer. To give is to transfer from my possession, my custodialship maybe, to uh, someone else. So if you give a birthday gift to somebody, whatever it is, you are taking it from your possession and you're giving it into their possession. If, if you come to church and you tell somebody, here is my car keys, hold them for me, you are giving them your car keys, and when it's time to go, who are you expecting to have your car keys? That person that you gave them to because you transferred your keys to them. So he gave, Christ Jesus gave, and what did he give? Look at the verse, what did he give? Who gave 
himself, his very person, his very being. When we speak of someone giving themselves, such as when we say he gave himself to doing that job, do we mean they gave part of themselves? Or do we mean they gave all of themselves? We mean they gave all of themselves to accomplishing whatever it is they had to accomplish. In this case, when it talks about he gave himself, it has the idea of the totality of who he is. He gave all. He gave everything. Christ gave himself, his entire person. It's a sacrificial act. Thirdly, letter C, I want you to also see in this verse that this payment that is made for all is a substitutionary act. It's a substitutionary payment act. This verse goes on to say, um, he gave himself a ransom for all. A ransom for all. Now, what's that word ransom mean? Uh, when, when you hear the word ransom, what comes to your mind? R ransom is, in general, it's the price paid to release something. So you might think of a kidnapper, right? So um, somebody is kidnapped and their family has to pay the ransom. That's the price for the release of that person. Uh, how about this? You remember a few months ago, I mean, so I don't remember exactly when, but within the last 12 months, <laughs> where that oil pipeline shut down, you remember that and how it affected North Carolina? You know, the reason that pipeline shut down was because of a thing called ransomware a program somebody inserted into the computers of that oil company that shut down their computers until the terrorists, I don't know what else you'd call them, the people who put the uh, software in there until they were paid off. So it's called ransomware. To get that program out of your computer, you have to pay to have your computers released. So this is the idea of ransom. Now the word that is used here, the word that is used here is anti-lutruon. Anti-lutruon, let me spell that for you. A-N-T-I-L-U-T-R-O-N. A-N-T-I-L-U-T-R-O-N. So if you wrote that down, what I want you to do is underline the L-U-T-R-O part. Underline that part. Okay, that's the core, uh, that's the core word, Lutruon. Now here's the thing with this word ransom that we see here, anti-Lutruon, in our passage. It's only used here. This is the only place in the entire Bible that this word is used. However, that part that I had you underline, there's other words that, that are like it that occur all over the Bible, and I want you to go to a few with me. So a related word to ransom is the word latruon. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Matthew 20, verse 28. Notice what it says. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and notice the last part, and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, this is almost exactly the phrase that we have in our passage here in 1 Timothy. It's almost word for word. In fact, most Bible students believe that Paul is in a way quoting Jesus. So in our passage in 1 Timothy 2, 6, most Bible scholars believe that Paul is quoting Jesus when he says this in Matthew 
20, 28, and this also occurs in Mark 10, 45. Same exact phrase. Now, this is the, the Greek word latruon. Latruon. What is interesting about this word is that it is the word specifically used in the Greek world as a representative of a price that is paid to free a slave. So this is the word that is used as the payment price for the freedom of a slave. So if there's a slave who wants to buy their freedom, they would, Latruon, they would pay the price, the ransom here. Now, another related word is really the verb form of this. So I want you to see this in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. So you get Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 2 Peter comes after 1 Peter. <laughs> so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says this. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed. So that's our word. That's our word. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your fathers. Now, notice verse 19. But, there's a contrast, but. So Peter is saying, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And of course, the language he uses there is the sacrificial language of the Old Testament. So this is the word redeemed, redeemed. And really, this word just means to pay the cost, to pay the cost. And so this is the, the verb form of latruon, and it can be, it's, it's actually used, believe it or not, this word is actually used to get something out of hock. So go to a pawn shop and you put something up for collateral and they give you cash in return. This is the word that's used for you going back to the pawn shop and, and redeeming whatever it is that you put in there and getting it, getting it back. This is the word that is used for that. It's also used for just going to the store and buying something. The point is that it's talking about paying a cost. Paying a cost. Uh, another word that's very similar that we find in our Bible is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Let's turn back there. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Of course, Luke chapter 1, verse 68 is a part of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. It's about his prophecy, not only of his son, but of Jesus Christ, his nephew, who would be born not too many months after this. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, it says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So this word redeemed is connected to our word ransom. Again, it's having the same basic idea, a payment to release. A payment for freedom. And so when we consider this idea of ransom, we see that it is the act of an payment a payment for something. When we look at our particular word back here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this word anti-lutruon or lutron, anti-lutron, it's a compound word and it's an emphatic word. And it has the idea of exchange, that this payment is an exchange, even a one-for-one one exchange. In other words, somebody pays one thing and they get one thing in return. 
I'm trying to drill into our heads this morning that the ransom that is mentioned here in our passage, the ransom that Christ paid was the purchase price, was the price of relief, uh, release, was the price of freedom, was a one-for-one -one exchange. It was substitutional. He paid the price. So we don't have to pay the price. And so when we realize that this is a substitutional act, we ask the question, who or what did Christ substitute himself for? What or who did he give himself for as a payment? The answer, again, is found in our, in our verse. Verse 5, verse 6, who gave himself a ransom, two words, for all. The question that many believers have is this. Now, they, they don't ask this question before they get saved. They only ask this question out after they get saved. This is the question only people who have been saved ask. Did Christ die for all or just some? Did Christ die for only a few select people? Did he die for only those who would believe, or did he die from everyone? The inescapable truth of this verse is that Christ gave himself for all, and that includes unbelievers. The only way you can sidestep this fact is to play fast and loose with the words of Scripture. No, no matter what we think other passages might say about this topic, this passage makes explicit that Christ gave himself as the ransom cost for the freedom of all men. And we've already seen all means all. You can't limit all in any way. And this truth fits with everything we know about what the Bible says about salvation. All men are sinners. That means all men need to be saved. Someone has to pay the penalty for all men's sins. God is the one who must be paid. And because God is the one that has to be paid, the penalty has to meet his requirements his definition of what is perfect, righteous, and just. But God himself is the one who paid that penalty. He is the one who made salvation available for all. The freedom offered to man is the result of God paying the penalty for our sins. And even though God has paid to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, it still has to be accepted. This gift that he has provided still must be accepted personally in order to be realized. Freedom, salvation, is available to all as a gift offered by God. But that gift must be received. Jesus Christ was the ransom price himself. And he paid that price for every single person. It was not only a one-for-all substitutionary act. It was a one-for-one one substitutionary act. Hope you see the difference. Christ sacrifice was valuable enough, sufficient enough to pay for the sins of everyone, sin in general. But he also paid the price for your sins as an individual, a one-for-one substitutionary sacrifice. There are two unmistakable facts here. First, Christ gave himself as the payment for our sins, and two, this payment was made in behalf of as a substitution for every single person. So it's a substitutionary act. D, letter D, I also want you to see that it's a timely act. 
a timely act. It says here in our passage at the end of verse 6, to be testified in due time. Now, what happens in that phrase there, to be testified in due time, it's taking a noun in Greek and turning it into a verb. In Greek, it says a testimony in its own time. A testimony in its own time. So Paul says a very similar thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You'll remember this when I give it to you. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You remember that? Christ died at the right time for the ungodly. It seems to me that what this phrase is saying, and by the way, nobody agrees. Well, hardly anybody agrees about what this phrase is saying. It's, it's kind of difficult. But it seems to me that the correct way to understand this phrase, a testimony in its own time, is that the death of Christ Jesus as the substitution for the sins of all men is a testimony of God's desire for all men to be saved. And that this testimony was made exactly at the right time in history according to God's gracious plan. Uh, the very evidence that God desires all men to be saved is the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Those two things go together. God's desire, God's desire for all men to be saved and Christ giving himself as a ransom for all men. How do we know that God loves the world of sinful man? Because he sent his only begotten son to redeem man. The son is the redeemer and is the redemption price himself. And so we see that this payment that is made, this payment of Jesus Christ of himself is sufficient to provide salvation for all. Now let's see how this connects to Paul's ministry in verse 7. Paul's ministry in verse 7. It says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So here in verse 7, Paul is connecting his ministry back to everything that has just been said in verses 5 and 6, to these truths that he has just been talking about. He's connecting his ministry to these truths. So here is Paul's message. Here's, here's Paul's message. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. This man, the God-man, gave himself as a ransom, as the freedom price... For all, for all, so that they would be right with God, so they can have their sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. That is Paul's message. And so this is, this is the message of his ministry. And we notice, secondly, in this verse, that Paul was placed into this ministry. Uh, he was placed into this ministry. Uh, this is not a ministry that... Uh, he would have wanted, this is not a ministry that he was chosen to, or, or he chose for himself. This is what, was a ministry he was placed into. That's what the word appointed means. It means to place. He was placed into this ministry where he would give this message. And so this is a ministry, this is letter C, this is a ministry of a herald. Paul's ministry was the ministry of a herald. In our verse it says, for which I was appointed a preacher. The word preacher there is, is not like what you think of a preacher today. It's not a pastor. It's the word for a herald. One who makes an authoritative official announcement. 
You know, this would be like if you're on a ship and the loudspeaker comes on and it says, now hear this, now hear this. This is the first officer speaking. And they go on to tell you whatever. When you hear that speaker come on and you hear it, now hear this, now hear this, this is the first officer speaking, you know that he is giving you a message from the captain, the one in authority. That's a herald. They announce an official message. But we also see that this was the ministry of an apostle. Paul was placed in the ministry as an apostle. Now, we've already looked at what it means to be an apostle, so we're not going to go into that. Just remember, it's the idea of someone who has been personally chosen to be an official representative. Personally chosen to be an official representative. So, in Paul's ministry, he's not just making official announcements, but he is also the official representative of his authority. And remember who Paul's authority is. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the letter, Paul tells us his commission into the, his apostleship was through God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's who his authority is. That is the ones who put him into this ministry, who placed him into this ministry as a herald and an apostle. Paul goes on to say here in verse 7 that the message of this ministry is true. Letter E, the message of this ministry is true. The message that God desires all men to be saved, the message that God has provided the way for all men to be saved through the ransom price provided by Jesus Christ, this is the truth. He even emphasizes it by saying he's not lying. Maybe you've used that before. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. If you think about it, that doesn't make any sense, does it? You're either telling the truth or not. You don't need to say, I'm not lying. But we do that, the same reason that Paul did it, is it adds emphasis. This is the absolute truth. There's no questioning this. And finally, we see that this ministry is to the Gentiles. Look at the end of verse 7 a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And I think, he, I think he mentions this here specifically because the false teachers of Ephesus seem to have a prejudice against Gentiles. After all, they're the ones that were teaching Jewish fables and talking about genealogies. So they seem to be prejudiced against the Gentiles. But Paul is saying that God's desire to save does not just stop with the Jews. He also desires the salvation of the Gentiles. And when Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, it's not all the Jews. It's all, and that includes everyone, including those nasty, stinky, pagan Gentiles which I'm guessing almost all of us are. <laughs> That's us. We're the Gentiles. And so the ministry of the Apostle Paul was to herald these three truths. There is only one God. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And there is only one sacrifice sufficient to take away not only the sins of the world, but to take away all of your own personal sins. When we think about the death of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that it is the death of Jesus Christ, which is God the Father's provision to accomplish what he desires. God the Father desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. 
God the Son's death on the cross is the, the provision to see the Father's desire be accomplished. Aren't you glad that our God is not just a God of wanting and desire, but he's also the God of provision? I hope you truly believe that God not only desires all men to be saved, but that you believe he has provided the way, he has provided the means for all men to be saved. I hope you have not fallen into the idea of exclusivism, the idea that says only some can be saved, that Christ only paid the penalty for the sins of a few. That was the error of many Jews, and I believe it's part of the error of these false teachers in Ephesus, and it's not true. There might be someone who's listening to me today who has never accepted Christ as their Savior by faith. And I want you to know, Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins. He has provided the way for you to be made right with God. Salvation is a gift that must be received. It is a gift that Jesus himself provided by dying on the cross for your sins, paying the penalty for your sins with his own life. And this gift of salvation is being offered to all and to you by God. But it has to be received in faith. You have to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It could go something like this. Acknowledge that you are a sinner and have sinned against the one true and living God. You acknowledge you're accountable to God, the one true and living God. Believe that Jesus died for your sins so that you would not have to pay the price of the death penalty for your sins and spend eternity in the lake of fire. Believe he is the one mediator and he has offered the one sacrifice and call upon the Lord to save you, placing your complete trust in him. The Bible says when we do this, we're saved. We're saved. You will receive the gift of salvation that God has provided through Jesus Christ simply by trusting your life to Jesus. Now, to those of you who are believers, and I'm going to imagine that's most who are listening to me, let me ask you a very serious question. Are you treating the ransom price Christ paid for you cheaply? Are you treating the price of Christ's death on the cross cheaply? Are your thoughts, are your behaviors treating Christ's sacrifice, what it cost God, cheaply? Some people have this attitude when it comes to the death of Christ. They think, I'm saved now, so I can live however I want. I know I'm going to sin. I know what I'm doing is sin, but guess what? It's covered under the blood. People who think that way are treating the death of Christ cheaply. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that we read when we take communion, there's these people who are sick and weak and some, actually I think it says many, who sleep are dead. Why? Because they've treated the death of Jesus Christ cheaply. I, I know we struggle with sins. 
I know all of us struggle with different sins. Some of those sins we might even judge as being more serious than others. But if you're struggling with sin, I'm glad. Because when you struggle with sin, it means you understand the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of the implications. I am more concerned about those of us who sin, but we do not struggle with the sin. We sin with callous disregard for the death of Christ. Uh, whenever you sin, and it's a sin that you are not willing to give up, whether it's one of the biggies or one that's not so obvious, like pride, selfishness, bitterness, an unforgiving heart, a hardness to the word of God, a resistance to the spirit of God, whatever that sin might be that you are harboring in your heart, sin that you are committing in a callous way, you are saying, I value my sin, the gratification, the enjoyment that this sin gives me, whatever it might be, I am valuing that more than I value the Lord Jesus Christ. And so are you treating the death of Jesus Christ cheaply? That's a challenge I want to leave with you this morning. It, does your life, does your life recognize the value of the gift that you have been given? Won't you stand with me and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your word this morning that we have seen. We give you thanks for the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Uh, but Father, we would be remiss if we didn't also thank you for the death of your son. That you loved the world so much that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we praise you, our Lord Jesus Christ, for dying for us, for taking our place on the cross, dying for our sins, paying the ransom, paying the penalty that we might be free simply by put placing our trust in you. And so we magnify and glorify you this morning. And Father, I would want to come before you on behalf of our church and, and confess if there are sins represented in our church that are sins of callousness and disregard for the death of your son. Lord, help us to be mindful of the value and worth of the gift that we have been given. And Lord, as we go out of this building, as we head out into the world and there's different things that influence us, Lord, always have our minds remember that we have been bought with a price and we are not our own. That we need to live for you. That we need to submit ourselves to you, to serve you, and to live for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to tell others that the gift that we have is also offered to them. I pray that you would impress that upon our mind. Make it be the thing that is the controlling thought that we have. Lord, now as we go to our Sunday school classes, be with us. Pray that you would bless our time of fellowship in between. And Lord, again, we praise you and honor you and worship you this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.